Welcome to Climate Now, I'm James Lawler. We have an exciting announcement to make at the top of this episode, which is that Climate Now has been nominated for the 26th annual Webby Awards in the Video Science and Education category. The Webby Awards honor internet excellence internationally. Climate Now is very honored to be nominated alongside organizations like National Geographic and BBC. Voting for the public is open through April 21st, and we need your help. You can vote by going to vote.webbyawards.com and searching for Climate Now. Thanks so much, and on with our conversation today. You're listening to Climate Now. I'm James Lawler, and today we'll be speaking about business climate reporting. On March 21st of 2022, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, proposed rule changes that would require publicly traded companies to disclose climate information. The proposal is under comment until May 20th, 2022, and once adopted, it will phase in requirements for publicly held companies to assess and disclose their climate-related risk, greenhouse gas emissions, and how they are aligning their business models to be prepared for a changing climate and energy transition. Here to speak with us today about why the SEC is proposing these rule changes and how they might impact businesses is Nir Kesar. Nir is a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering the markets and the founder of Unison Advisors, which is an asset management firm. Nir, thank you so much for joining us on Climate Now. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a bit about you. How, how did you become a portfolio manager and a Bloomberg columnist? How did I get here? I was a um, business and English lit student in college, um, which uh, I didn't know it at the time would prepare me well for financial writing the left brain, right brain combination. I went from college to work for Ernst & Young, the consulting arm of that firm. This was in the late 1990s. I was doing valuation work. During that time, there was, um, you know, it was just the beginning of the dot-com boom. And there was a lot of interest in takeovers and M&A activity and whatever. So I worked for a group that did valuations for M&A, mergers and acquisitions, mostly in the healthcare um, space. Then I went to law school, believe it or not. I practiced corporate law on Wall Street for a number of years in the 2000s, in the uh, booming 2000s. And then I left to um, start an asset management firm. And I've been doing that ever since. I joined Bloomberg in 2015 and I've been writing for them since then. So what we'd like to talk about today is the SEC proposal for climate disclosures. And I'm wondering if you could sort of set the table for the conversation by describing what exactly is this proposal? Yeah, so that's, that's a pretty good place to start. In broad terms, what this does is it requires public companies to disclose climate-related risks, I would categorize them in two ways. One is they want companies to provide disclosures about how climate in general is going to affect their business, their line items on their financial statements, their business more broadly. Obviously, that requires companies that are not thinking about this to think about this, but companies that are already doing planning around this will have to disclose what they know what they plan, et cetera. And there are a fair number of companies that have done, are doing work around this. They're just not telling anyone about it. This would require them to tell, to tell investors and shareholders about it. The second thing is um, they're, 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 they'll have to um, disclose basically greenhouse gas emissions directly and indirectly, meaning their own emissions, but also the emissions of the energy that they consume and potentially even further downstream, the you know, products that they, that they buy and that they trade in or whatever, um, the impact of, of those emissions, they'll have to potentially disclose as well. So it's pretty, pretty broad and far reaching, I would say. Now, could you, could you contextualize this proposal within the SEC's sort of charter or framework? What, why does the SEC exist? And how does this proposal align with their 
reason for being? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question because critics of this proposal have come out and basically accused the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, of wading into climate policy. And they're doing nothing of the sort. And I think it's really important to clear up that confusion. The Securities and Exchange Commission was created in the 1930s after the Great Depression. There was a great market crash, 1929, basically, to 1932. And from that came this commission. And basically, it was charged with the protection of investors, primarily by requiring companies to disclose information that would be useful for investors to make decisions. And the reason that's important to understand is because this is really just another step in that chain. The the SEC has long required companies to make all kinds of financial disclosures. And if you read an annual statement of a company, it's tens of pages at least deep of various disclosures. And, you know, climate disclosures may not have been important 30, 40 years ago, although I would argue they probably were. We just didn't know they were. But now that we know that they are, um, and certainly companies themselves, as I mentioned, know that they are. It's, it's completely appropriate for the SEC to say, this is information that you should uh, disclose to your investors, to shareholders and investors, because they need to know about it. So that's really the SEC's job. The SEC's job is to get information to investors that investors want in order to make decisions. Right. So, you know, SEC's position is investors, you know, sh- should have access to information to allow them to properly gauge the risks that they're taking with their capital. And And opportunities, I might add. And opportunities. Right. Great. Good point. And and so um, to that end, like why are emissions disclosures material considerations when assessing the risk of investment in a given company? How do emissions disclosures connect with the, the risk that an investor in a given company might be taking? So I would say they both, you know, both of the prongs that w- that I talked about, emissions being one of them, they 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 directly affect companies. It seems it seems to me, and I'm not alone. It seems to many investors. Um, one is that we we clearly have seen in recent years the impact of climate change on companies, regardless of what you think of climate risk. There are severe weather events that are occurring a lot, um, mm-hmm. and they have already affected many companies across industries. And um, and so I think it's I think it's important for investors to understand to what extent are these companies in harm's way, either because of where they're located, um, you know, the decisions that they've made, where they've planted themselves and so on. Right. So so that's a direct threat to companies and companies are thinking about this. And so they should tell investors and shareholders how they're thinking about this. Emissions is really, I think, a question of where the where the where industry and the economy is going to go and how that's going to going to impact companies. So for example, um, companies that are direct emitters, um, they might their business might have to change in the coming years uh, for various reasons, because of policy, because of because of weather related events. Um, and the question is what are they planning to do about it and how are they going to transition? That's a business risk. And if you're an investor, long-term investor in a company, you want to know about that. The other thing is that it's a little bit more intangible, but emissions could have an impact on companies in ways that aren't directly related to their business. And to the extent that companies are thinking about this, and like I said, I think they are, then that's another thing that they should disclose to investors. So I'd love to drill a little bit more into those two points you just made. So uh, the first one being that in an environment where the world is more concerned about the changing climate, there may be increased costs to companies that emit more. So the types of costs that are coming to mind are, for example, a price on carbon 
which would be a direct cost to uh, large emitters. There could also be increased public pressure against companies. Uh, there could be pressure on investors to divest from such companies. Is that is are those the kinds of costs you're thinking about, or or are there other things beside that, like penalties that large emitters would face that investors today should know about in the SEC's estimation? Well, that's definitely one application, and that's what I was sort of uh, trying to describe as the more intangible. But let me give you a tangible one that I think everyone will understand, which is say you're an oil company. And say that everyone's going to, I don't know if this is going to happen, but let's just say you wake up in 10 years and everyone is driving an electric car. What does that do to ExxonMobil, right? Um, and there, there are going to be transitions around energy use, um, and there's going to be downstream effects from this. And to the extent that companies are in this business, then their business is going to have to change. Um, and if not, they're going to become dinosaurs and they're going to disappear. And the thing is, a lot of the companies that you take for granted today are not going to exist in 30 years, 40 years. And one of the reasons is going to be climate related. And so they need to prepare for that today. And, um, and to the extent that they're not preparing for it today, investors need to know about that. So we're really talking about very tangible impact on business. But we are, we are you're right to say, also talking about you know, the, the regulation that would come from government, um, uh, consumer preferences, these are all in play. And these are all things that, um, that companies should tell investors about. This is pr a proposed disclosure. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so it's, it's actually relatively straightforward, but the way it works is there's a proposal that's put out. In investors, observers, really anyone, me and you can comment about the proposal. The SEC will take those comments into consideration and then they'll issue final rules. But the thing to know is that once the rules have been proposed, they're well on their way. I mean, the only question is going to be, you know, how are they changed around the edges? It would be very unlikely for those proposals to be changed wholesale. Now, what percentage of companies today are regularly assessing, you know, climate risk and their emissions? Because it strikes me that that's probably a very small percentage of the total number of companies that would have to comply with this rule. That, that's the million dollar question. This is why we need companies to communicate with us more than they do. And when I say us, from the perspective of the SEC, I'm really talking about, again, shareholders and investors. And it's going to have more downstream effects, which I'm sure we'll get into. But, but the important thing is that we, we're in the dark about all this. And all we can do right now is speculate. My guess is that more companies are thinking about this than you think. Because ultimately, you know, these are very shrewd, very shrewd, smart people with sharp pencils who um, are in the business of making money. And they understand that these are big risks. You know, and they don't want to be caught flat-footed after, after all the extreme weather events we've seen in the last few years. So my guess is the vast majority of them, I would say, are thinking about this. But the big reveal is coming. What's going to be interesting is to the extent that they haven't been thinking about this, it'll be very embarrassing for them to say so. How will they handle that? I mean, can you imagine a company in a year or two from now coming out and saying, well, we just haven't done any work on this. Sorry, folks. We'll start. We'll get to work and we'll let you know in a few years what we think. Hard for me to imagine that. So my guess is it's a minority of companies that haven't done any work on this. And my guess is those companies are getting to work literally yesterday. Right. Let's turn to the downstream impacts of this. What, how would you describe the landscape that these rules create for businesses? Let me take a step back and sort of just think about this more broadly. 
One of the things we take for granted, and I think one of the reasons we take it for granted is because we don't have enough information, is corporate America's footprint. It, it's a huge footprint. Corporate America is, employs about half the people in this country. Um, it, has, it has a huge impact on pretty much every aspect of our lives. And I would say that more now than maybe ever before, given how big public companies have become, particularly at the very top, how impactful they become. Think about Walmart, think about Amazon, think about the very big players and how impactful they become. Um, and the reason that's important to understand is because if you think about that, then you know people in this country who are making policy, whatever it is, whether you're interested in climate, whether you're interested in human capital management, whatever it is that you're, that you're interested in that's a big public policy uh, problem, um, or, or at least an agenda item, let's just say, right, without editorializing too much, you're going to need to know what corporate America is up to. And so beyond shareholders and investors, I think, let me just give you um, a non, if you'll forgive me, a non-climate question, for example, that'd be very useful to know. What are wages like at publicly traded companies? What publicly traded companies employ half of the people in this country? What are they paying their employees? We don't know the answer to this question. How do we fashion public policy if we don't know what half of the people in America are getting paid? And it's not that the companies don't know. I mean, we can argue when, when it comes to climate about what they have done, what they haven't done, what they know, what, what they don't know. But we cannot argue when it comes to wages, right? They know what they're paying their people. They're paying them. And so the, the same thing is true about climate. What this will do is the downstream effects that I have in mind is it will allow researchers, academics, think tanks, um, Congress. Uh, policymakers at the state and local level to peer into what corporate America is up to and fashion uh, more targeted policy that gets after the vulnerabilities. That is something that we simply cannot do today. Now, let's not conflate that, though, with policy. Um, the SEC's job, again, is to provide investors information. The fact that that information will also be useful to others does not mean that the SEC is fashioning policy. It just means that they are they are giving us the data, us being not only investors, but the broader community, to do with, the, with that data what we want. The fact that that data is also going to, I think, promote smarter public policy is something that should be celebrated. Hmm. So what kinds of policy might come out of the revelation of all of this data in your mind? Well, who are the emitters, for example, uh, directly and indirectly? What businesses are really contributing the most to greenhouse gases? You know, we can estimate these things today. And I mean, you would know probably, James, better than I would, how finely we can estimate that with respect to corporate America. But I think how, whatever that answer is, I think it's safe to say that with direct disclosure, we won't really need to estimate. We will actually have the data. Yeah. Let's say that you have not yet started, you know, and you're behind the eight ball and you, you, need, to, you need to get this work done. How do you do it? I will tell you that I have a high degree of confidence that there is an infrastructure that's already there for companies to tap into. One of the requirements of this proposal is that companies, when it comes to emissions, will need third-party verification. And you know there is an industry of verifiers out there that will step in and provide that service. And you know if, if it didn't exist, it would be problematic. So right. at least with respect to emissions, I think it's relatively easy. To the extent that they don't know what to do, they can pick up the phone. They'll have to pick up the phone anyway. They'll call a verifying company and the verifying company will tell them what to do. 
it's a harder question with respect to the actual business risks. And I think there, to the extent they haven't done any work, they're going to have to do, they're going to have to roll up their sleeves and do real thinking. I mean, you know, what I envision is, you know, some, some people around a boardroom pulling out their financial statements, line item by line item, and thinking about what the risks are. And again, I don't think they have to start from scratch. I think there are a lot of smart people who have thought about this. And there's a lot of literature out there about climate-related business risk that they can tap into. It's going to be a lift. They're going to have to do work. Um, and, and they should do work. And to the extent that this, this, these rules push them in that direction, then I think all, it's all for the best. Mm-hmm. So one of the criticisms that I, you addressed actually in an article you wrote recently in Bloomberg was that this is sort of an overstep be, by the SEC because it um, gets into, quote, like ESG territory. And ESG, it's used for a lot of different purposes by different people. I, I wonder if you could just reflect on the statement that you were kind of rebutting and this term ESG in particular. ESG is a funny thing. You know, when I, when I talk, when I get a hold of the pioneers of this uh, ESG movement, they really dislike this, uh, the tag. I mean, they wish that they could have tagged it something different in Inception. And I find that that's common to all pioneers. It's like, you know, they don't, they don't name it. They just do it because they're just smart, thoughtful people. And then it's named by somebody else. And they're like, oh, you know, we wish we had done more at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, but we're stuck with it. We're not going to get rid of it. And ESG for the uninitiated, environmental, social, and governance. Um, and ESG is, I think, widely misunderstood. Um, if I can, if I can just get on my soapbox for a minute, ESG is is an investing style. It is not, it is often confused with a uh, values slash impact movement. It is not that. Um, it is a it, it it's a it, it's it, people hate to hear this. They really don't want this to be true. Um, but it, it, but unfortunately it is, well, not unfortunately, I think it's fine that it's true. Um, and I think it's, it's useful to understand ESG is really a portfolio management um, tool. What it does is it's trying to identify companies with, with either risks or opportunities along the environmental social governance spectrum that, that um, when considered in a portfolio can be expected to have to, to, to result in a better performing portfolio either because it reduces the risk of that portfolio or because it, it, uh, it, um, it increases the return of that. That's, that's what ESG is. Now, ESG, like any investing style, requires data. You need data, right? You need inputs in order to get the output. And uh, people confuse the data with ESG. Um, ESG is what someone chooses to do with data around environmental, social, and governance. But the data itself is not ESG. The data itself is data, you know, and you can do whatever you want with it. The reason I, I'm I'm sort of taking the time to unpack this is because just as it's important not to conflate this SEC proposal with policy, it's also important not to conflate this SEC proposal with ESG. The SEC is just giving investors the tools to the extent that they're ESG investors to to use that data, right? But but it doesn't preclude other investors in using that data. Right. And if you are a if you are a values or impact type investor, that data will probably also be useful to you. So there are many applications to this, um, and ESG just happens to be one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are sort of the behind-the-scenes interactions like that lead to the release of this rule? And how long do you think this has been gestating? And what was maybe the 
you know, the final straw that made this inevitable on behalf of the SEC? I would say it's hard to generalize because every rule is different. But on this particular one, I would say that it was a groundswell of, of interest from investors about this type of information. And to be honest, I'm surprised it's taken this long because it's not, and, it, and it's really the big investors. I mean, think about pensions, big endowments, um, uh, uh, sovereign wealth funds. We're talking about trillions of dollars um, that's being invested. And these folks are looking at these risks and they're saying, we don't have enough information to make the decisions that we want to make. The reason that these big players are important is not only because they're big players, but also because by virtue of their size, they own everything. They're, they're, what's, um, what's, what, they're referred to, they sometimes refer to themselves as universal investors, meaning that when you run trillions of dollars, you can't just own Amazon or whatever. You know, Me and you can own five stocks if we want. If you run a trillion dollars, you don't have that luxury. You have to literally own every asset in the world. Well, if you're forced to own every asset in the world, then you're also forced to care about every asset in the world. And now you really need to know what's going on at these companies. And so these, um, these big investors have been in the SEC's ear for, I would say, years, um, maybe over a decade, telling them these are the types of things that we need to know. And, and we're not going to get them from companies unless you compel the disclosure. And so it was really a groundswell of interest from investors that resulted in this and incidentally will result in other, you know, human capital management type disclosure. I think that's coming next. But there are other disclosures that investors have been in the SEC's ear about. Um, and that's really why they're doing this. They're doing this because investors want it. And I also imagine that by the SEC mandating these disclosures, it creates a valuable repository of data for investors because everyone's reporting in the same way. No. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a very important point. I mean, that's 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 one of the I think mo most forceful arguments for compelling disclosure, which is that you know if you leave it up to companies, you could make the argument. People often make the argument that if you left this to the market, if investors truly do want the information, they'll get the information. I'm not entirely there is some truth to that. I'm not entirely persuaded by that, partly because you're always going to have some holdouts. And like I said, for universal owners, they don't really have the luxury of like cutting out of their portfolio, the holdouts. So it's not I don't think it's 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 economically feasible from my perspective. And I would go further. I would say that if 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 it were true that the market could could deal with this on its own, then probably the SEC would have never come into existence in the first place. One of the things we learned after the so-called great crash of 1929 was that a lot of investors didn't have the information they needed to see some of these risks coming. And so the, the, we, we decided to deal with this by basically making information available. So, so yes, I, I think that, that I think we, we have hands-on experience about where that argument fails. Uh, but one of the reasons why an SEC uh, is, is important is because even if you did leave it to the market, you'd have different conventions of disclosing the same thing. The SEC is the only person who would come along and say, not only do we want you to disclose X, we want you to disclose it in Y fashion, right? This is the way we want you to do it. And not only that, it's a repository for the information in one place. So, so I, can, I, as an investor, can go online and I can have data that's conformed for me across companies, across industries in one repository where I, where I can access it you know, relatively easily. So that's, that's, that's a function that only the SEC can play. And so how will this impact, do you think, smaller asset managers? You know, you're, you're an asset manager yourself. There's a huge industry in private equity, for example, that, that buys companies that are not public companies. 
I, I wonder if you could reflect on how does this impact kind of the investing ecosystem outside of publicly traded companies and these trillion dollar investors that invest in them? Well, a couple of things. One is there has been a movement in recent years uh, away from uh, companies choosing to stay private longer or just avoiding the public markets altogether. And we don't know exactly why. One of the things that you often hear is the reasons. The reason one of the reasons companies are doing this is because we've we've put so much regulation on top of them, disclosure rules, and so on, that they just rather be private and not have to deal with these disclosure rules. Um, that's possible. I'm skeptical that that's driving their decisions, and I think I don't think that you're going to see meaningful movement. Uh, between the private and public markets as a result of this proposal or any other proposals that are going to come down the pike. That's just my own personal view. But, uh, but the, the second part of that is that is really how it's going to impact investors themselves, um, big and small. I think for big investors, the ones that we were just talking about, I think it will help their process tremendously because, like I said, they're universal owners and they're looking at these companies very closely. They have huge teams that are in constant contact with these companies. And so, you know, they'll have a basis on which to have more meaningful conversations with them and the like. So they'll be impacted on day one. In terms of, you know, people like individual investors, people like me and you, I don't know that the impact is going to be obvious on day one, because I think it'll take time for this information to get into the um, into the information stream. It's going to take time for for funds let's just say ETFs, mutual funds and the like, to incorporate that information into their own process. I think new products will come out that use this data in order to sort through companies. Think about, you know, our listeners might be familiar with value funds or growth funds. What are they doing? They're just sorting publicly available information on companies and compiling portfolios with companies with like characteristics. The same thing will be true with this data. You might have a fund that says, you know, this is a this is a fund of companies with emissions less than X, or this is a fund of companies that has thought about climate change in Y way, or whatever it is. Those products, I, I bet, will come to market, and it just means that people like me and you will just have more options about how to invest along sort of the climate-related spectrum. But that'll take some time. That'll be, I think, a year, two, three, you know, down the road. That was Nir Kesar, Bloomberg opinion columnist and founder of the asset management firm Unison Advisors. That's all for this episode of the podcast. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation. The Livermore Lab Foundation supports climate research and carbon cleanup initiatives at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a Department of Energy Applied Science and Research facility. More information on the foundation's climate work can be found at livermorelabfoundation.org. To listen to our interview with Emily Wasley about the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or our episode with Tori Greaves about analyzing business climate risk, or other interviews from Climate Now, to watch our videos or sign up for our newsletter, visit climatenow.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet us at WeAreClimateNow. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.